This morning, it was our honor and pleasure to have retired missionaries with us, Jeff and Ruth Boswell. I'm just going to ask you to stand so that people can see you for a moment. They have invested 26 years in Africa sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We No, you're not done yet. We need to keep standing. <laughs> <laughs> they have been very close and dear friends, not only of Debbie and myself, but of this church. We've been part of their ministry in a small way in our funds and our prayers, but I think we need to acknowledge them and their service, thanking them for what they've done for the Lord Jesus Christ and for our church as well. So thank you. Please join me in God's word, John chapter 16. Our text of study will be found here, verse 25 to verse 33. We're going to finish this chapter this morning, but I'd like to pick up reading in verse 16 of John 16. John 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of, some of his disciples then said to one, or, one another, What is this thing that he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will that you I will do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to ask you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and already has come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Father in heaven, it is our hope that as we look at this passage together and we hear the words of our Savior speaking not only to the disciples, but the church that follows, and we are part of that body of Christ, that church. We want to hear then the message that you have given to us as believers. We want to, Father, not only hear and understand these words, but we want them to transform our lives. So we ask that by your spirit you will help us in this. Grant me the ability to speak clearly and well on these things. Grant to all of us as believers the spiritual ears necessary to hear, to discern, to learn, to grow, and to be more like your son. And I pray that you would grant to those that are yet here without Christ that you might open the heart that is otherwise dead to the things of God and grant the precious gift of faith that we as believers have come to know and to love. And we worship you, we praise you, and we give thanks to you for all of these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, these words here at the end of chapter 16 are the final words of Jesus Christ to his disciples in this farewell discourse just hours before he's arrested and crucified. These these words are often referred to as the upper room discourse because that's where this discussion began as Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room there in Jerusalem to take that final Passover meal, the Passover meal that would picture what Christ is about to do as the Passover lamb on the cross. Now, there's not full agreement as to where Jesus and his disciples are at this moment. We know that it began in the upper room, but there are those that believe that Jesus and the disciples, after chapter 14 and verse 31, where Jesus said, let's get up and go from this place, many believe that Jesus and his disciples began making their way out to the the Garden of Gethsemane, which means they would have made their way through the streets of Jerusalem and out the East Gate, out through the Kidron Valley, over to the Mount of Olives, and eventually end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are those that believe as Jesus speaks these final words, they are either at or almost to the Garden of Gethsemane. However, there are others that believe Jesus continued to share these words in the upper room, or at least in the same building. Perhaps they did get up, and they went down below to the lower floor, where they uh, were meeting in that building. Whatever the case... Wherever they're at here, I picture Jesus and his disciples, if they're moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane, they're having to pause along the way for Jesus to articulate these important truths because you can picture 12 men moving together in a group along dark, narrow streets in Jerusalem. It wouldn't have been conducive to have this kind of important conversation in single file, perhaps, as they're making their way through Jerusalem. So if they are on the move, I would envision that they're stopping along the way as Jesus gives these important sound bites of truth in his final hours before he is crucified. As we've noted previously, much of this message in John 14 to John 16 involved the coming or the sending of the Holy Spirit who Jesus would provide to minister and to care for his church. The closing words of chapter 16 are no exception because much of the content here is focusing on how the Spirit will bless the disciples and their early church, even though the Spirit isn't named here as the helper or the Spirit of truth 
or the Spirit of Christ, what Jesus is doing in his final words in chapter 16 is continuing to articulate the ministry that will come when the Spirit sends the, the, uh, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These blessings worked by the Spirit on the church are what John MacArthur, from his uh, commentary and this passage, calls the three cardinal Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And you will see those virtues woven into this passage as we make our way through it. In addition, throughout this discourse, Jesus has emphasized what is about to come. And we see the language all throughout this discourse. The hour that is coming, there is a day coming, there's a time coming, repeated again and again. We see it again in these final verses, verse 23 and 25. In that day, verse 25, an hour is coming. And again in verse 32, behold, an hour is coming. Jesus is pointing the gaze of the disciples forward to that day not only when they would see him raised and glorified and ascended to the Father, but that day when the Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days after Passover. And it's then when the Spirit comes, his indwelling presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit will enlighten, he will guide, he will enable and care for those that have been saved by faith through the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in these final words, Jesus recaps much of what he's already identified would be the ministry of the Holy Spirit who Christ would send to his church. And we're going to begin on that note, verse 25 down through verse 28, with the greater enlightenment that that spirit would bring to the church. This is where we start. This is where Jesus begins the the final recap of everything he wants his disciples to know before he is taken from them. And he's letting them know a day is about to take place. It is coming when the disciples would receive a greater understanding, a greater enlightenment from Christ. And remember when he says, you're going to receive this from me, he could as well be speaking about the spirit that he sent, who Christ is communicating the truths of God the Father too. And we see that back in verse 15 of this same chapter. All things that the Father has given are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine. He will disclose it to you. Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect harmony to communicate this understanding, gospel understanding of everything the church needed to know about the cross of Christ and how we as believers are to live as followers of Christ. The wording that is used here by Jesus to show that there is a greater understanding coming lets us know that to this point, Jesus been talking to the disciples in veiled language. He uses the words figurative language. It's a compound word in the Greek, and I understand it's very difficult to translate, but it has the idea of veiled wording or speaking in a way in which the meaning is not obvious to the disciples. And we already know why Jesus is doing that, don't we? Because he's previously told them, you're not going to be able to bear any more than this right now. Verse 12, you can't handle anymore. You know that movie, that line, you can't handle the truth? The disciples literally could not discern the truth until after the empty tomb, the ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Then they would have a fuller understanding of God the Father and everything that God the Father has provided in the redemption of His Son. The cross could not yet be fully revealed to them 
until Jesus had suffered, died, and risen again. They would need to see Jesus resurrected and glorified. And no doubt the 40 days following the empty tomb were a time of great revelation as Jesus walked with those disciples. He taught them, he instructed them on the importance of his death. But they would not fully understand even that until the Spirit would be sent just a few days after his ascension. Jesus then points to the day when believers will pray to the Father under the administration of the Spirit. And they would pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, and the Father will hear your prayers. This is again now a a repeat of what Jesus had been saying through this discourse about prayer, praying in his name. So obviously prayer is going to be an important discipline and an important grace of God to the church. Because throughout this discourse, Jesus has brought this prayer up again and again, praying in the name of the Son. You haven't done it till now, he said. They've been praying directly to the Father. Now they are going to learn to pray through the name of the Son. And we've looked at some of the significance of that in the past. We discussed praying in the name of Jesus even in our last study. But up until now, the disciples did not know to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. This truth that Jesus reveals, teaches, or reveals something to the disciples and to us as well about the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. To pray in the name of Christ means that our full access into the presence of God can only be through Jesus Christ the Son. We are to pray in accord with the character and the will of Jesus Christ as we saw in our previous studies. But just as important, Jesus is teaching that there is no access into heaven but through him. It is only by faith in his atoning sacrifice. It is only by what he is about to do on Calvary that these disciples are going to have access into the kingdom of God. They must be believers. They must put their faith and trust in Jesus as Messiah and Savior and Lord. This means that only those who are believers in Christ can pray to God the Father. And you will observe here in this passage, Jesus connects this directly with a fuller understanding of God the Father that the disciples needed to know. You're going to know more about the Father in the days ahead. The cross of redemption, faith in Christ, salvation of sinners, and communion with the Father are all bound together, showing that God the Father, God the Son, and even God the Spirit are inseparable in this union. For any to have a relationship with God and be on good terms with heaven is going to require this fuller understanding of God the Father and it will all point to God the Son and what he's about to accomplish on Calvary. For the church to come into this fuller understanding of the Father will require the cross, the empty tomb, and the enlightenment of the Spirit of truth. In other words... It's the Holy Spirit that must awaken sinners to faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin. And apart from this, apart from faith in Christ, none can know God. To know God is to know his son by faith. It is to know his deity, his humanity, his atoning and substitutionary sacrifice, and his ruling lordship. And it is from the ruling throne of Jesus Christ that he will send his spirit to bring this enlightenment to the church. Jesus adds to this in verse 26 
by saying that when this day of spiritual enlightenment comes, believers won't need Jesus Christ to do the praying for them because they will have direct access to the Father by praying in the name of Christ. In other words, as we pray in the name of Christ as believers, those of us that have put our faith in Christ, we are praying through that atoning sacrifice, which gives us access into the presence of the Father. And this, again, gives us a clue as to the mediation of Jesus Christ and what it will be like. This is not a picture of the believer sitting back and doing nothing and letting Jesus do the praying for us. That's what Jesus is telling his men. To this point, if you remember an example of that, Jesus would pray for Peter, remember why? So that his faith would not fail. Now Jesus is telling the disciples that day is coming when you won't need me to do the praying for you. You will have direct access into the presence of the Father yourselves by the mediation that I'm about to accomplish for you on Calvary's cross. This also does not find the believer asking Jesus to appeal to the Father on our behalf as if God is not willing to hear from us directly. In other words, the Son is not having to convince the Father to listen to us as if the Father is somehow resistant to that idea. And I think further this helps us to understand that we don't need any other but the name of Jesus to intercede for us before the throne of God. We don't need any of the past saints We certainly don't need Mother Mary to pray for us. We can access the throne of God, the Father, ourselves through the mediation of Christ. We go directly to God in prayer because Christ has gained us access into his presence by faith in his sacrifice and by his ongoing mediatorial work alone. We don't need any other. We can go right into the presence of God the Father. We're reminded in Matthew's gospel that when Jesus yielded up his spirit on the cross, remember the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top down to the bottom, declaring that God himself has torn asunder that which separated sinners from his holy presence. It is Christ, his son, that made that possible when he bore our sins on himself and God turned the judgment and wrath that was ours against his own son to the extent that the son would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Have you ever thought about that? The holy son of God became sin for us. It is entirely impossible for us to think that the perfect sinless son became defiled for us. That's exactly what happened on that moment of Calvary when the judgment of God was turned against his son. Our filth, our sin, our rebellion, our stubbornness, our wickedness, all dumped on the Savior. And he bore that load for us. And when it was finished and he surrendered his spirit, that which separates sinners from the holy presence of God was removed. And now by faith in Christ, as we put our trust in that Savior, we can enter into the presence of God. The reason that we are able to make our request to the Father directly is because we're praying in the name of His Son. And that doesn't mean we're simply tacking on the name of Jesus Christ at the end of our prayers. It means that we have entered into a relationship with Christ by faith 
that entitles us to enter into the presence of God. And to be sure, Jesus stands as our mediator before the Father, ensuring that we will always have a hearing with God through his Son. Jesus is telling us that the only access into the presence of God that is needed, it is him. It is Messiah. But I want you to notice also from what Jesus says here, that the reason we can pray directly to God in the name of Christ is because of the Father's love for his people. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they counseled together and provided a plan of redemption out of love for those that God determined to save. So it would be wrong for us to picture God as this cold and angry being while the kind, soft-hearted Son entered in and did what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he saved us from this angry God. Well, there is truth that we have been saved from the wrath of God. But what has moved this plan of redemption forward is God's love for us. That we would be delivered from his wrath. That we would be delivered from his judgment. It is God's love for us that moved him to provide the mediatorial work of his son that we might have fellowship with him. Perhaps this is something we as a church don't spend enough time on, contemplating the Father's love for us, contemplating how not only it provided salvation, but how it continues to sustain us. While we covered this matter in our study of chapter 14 and verse 21, it is important again to address the false assumption that the Father's love is somehow merited to us or merited by us Because we've loved the Son and we've believed in Him. We don't want to read the words of Jesus Christ in that way. We need to be careful with His words here. And as John has made clear in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love God because He first loved us. It is because God loved us first that He provided a Savior and His Son who fully accomplished redemption on our behalf. It is also the Father's love for us that His Spirit would be sent and regenerate us to newness of life, that He would grant to us the gift of faith, that He, God, would draw us to His Son because none can come to the Son unless the Father draws us. And why does He draw us to His Son? Because He loves sinners. He's moved by compassion. It's generally known by us as Christians that God loves us with an agape love. That's the the, the, the love of God's will. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that God has for sinners that he would give himself up for our salvation, though we deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation. That's the agape love of God for sinners. It compelled him to provide salvation in his son, to draw us to his son in faith. But here in chapter 16 and verse 27, Jesus uses a number, another form, another word for love. It's not agape love here. It's phileo. It's brotherly love. It's the love of emotion. It's the love of the heart of God. It's a familial love, a family love. This is a fatherly love that he extends to his children who have been drawn into salvation by his agape, sacrificial and redemptive love. All put together, God loved us enough 
to put this plan of redemption in motion, sending his son to be our savior. And by his love, he granted us the ability, having made us alive in Christ, granting us the ability to believe in his son, drawing us to his son. And once we receive Christ, once we receive new life, once we are born again and we are believers, how do we respond now to God? How do we respond to the Son? Is it not true now we love Christ, our Savior? We love the Father. And because we love the Son, Jesus is saying he, God himself pours out more fatherly love, phileo love on us. The result of God's love for us is that we love him through his son. We love his son. And by the enabling grace of his spirit, we have believed in his son, that he came forth from the father. That's what the disciples testified here. And in response, God pours out even more of his affections on us because we honor the son with our love, our obedience, our belief, our faith. Even that faith, that love, obedience, it was a gift of God. It's a work of his love. So God pours out his love on us. We respond in a love that he enables us with. And God pours out yet more fatherly love on his beloved children. Jesus tells the disciples that the day will come when he will no longer speak in veiled language. He will send the Holy Spirit who will descend upon the church. He will provide this greater enlightenment of the Father that his people needed to understand about God. I think much, much more could be made of God's love here for us. We could probably spend this whole time together speaking of that. But we're going to move to our second point. Not only is the Spirit providing a greater enlightenment of God the Father, but there is a provision of of growth in faith that is so necessary and it's evident in the disciples. Jesus continues to lead this discussion from a greater enlightenment of the Father to a growth in faith that the Spirit will be providing them. And it's a much-needed growth in faith that is needed in the hours and the days ahead. In verse 28, we read, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. This seems to be a simple statement to us, but we realize also it is loaded with theology. One simple, easy-to-understand statement. But it's loaded with theology, isn't it? And how is it you and I know that? It's because the Spirit has come. He's enlightened us to the truth. And he's grown us in our faith to understand what's going on here. That the Son of God came from the Father is a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, his eternal oneness with the Father. This has been the theme all throughout the Gospel of John. This is how John opened this narrative. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God. It was understood from the very opening pages of this narrative that Jesus Christ is God. He came from the Father. He belonged to that eternal realm of God. You move ahead one chapter, the high priestly prayer of Christ, John 15. And verse 5, now, Father Jesus prays, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was there with the Father in the beginning. He shared that glory of deity with the Father. 
And in between those two great declarations, John the Apostle has continued to affirm again and again the true divine nature of Jesus Christ, that he is one with the Father. As Jesus declared, before Abraham was, I am. The I am of the Old Testament. And then John articulates what Jesus so stated so well. He is also the seven I am's of the new covenant. We find that here in John's gospel. In chapter 5, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he was God, calling God the Father his own, making himself equal with God. Jesus not only came from God, but he came into our world, which speaks of his incarnation. So that sentence that we read there in verse 27 or 28 is not only declaring Jesus is God, but he came to this world in humanity. John again opened this gospel narrative in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came into our world fully God. And he became fully man, doing so to provide the atonement for sin that you and I could never accomplish in ourselves. He lived in our world free of sin and in perfect holiness, such that the Father would affirm him as his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. He then would give himself up on a cross as a substitute sacrifice for our sins, bearing the wrath of God that our sins earned for us. And he surrendered his life over to death to make full payment for sin. He rose from the grave three days later, declaring victory over sin, death, eternal judgment. And this is the victory that he offers to all who call upon him by faith. Having accomplished all that was necessary for our redemption, Jesus continues in verse 28 that he will return to the Father. I'm going back to the Father. That's my rightful place. And it is that ascension of Jesus Christ that affirms he belongs there on the throne at the right hand of God, ruling with the authority of God himself. The ascension, remember, as we talked about before, the return to heaven also affirms that the Father has, gives full approval to his Son in everything he accomplished on earth, including Calvary. The Father approves him. There's no access for us into heaven apart from Christ. Without his permission, we cannot get there. But notice Jesus Christ needs no permission. He ascends directly to the Father because that's where he belongs. The Father has already affirmed his Son. The Savior didn't need a mediator. He doesn't need a Savior. He belongs there at the right hand of the Father. The disciples felt, now we're hearing Jesus talk plainly. Now we're understanding. Now we're getting it. Though, though it was not true, the promise would be fully revealed at the resurrection and Pe Pentecost. They thought they knew. They thought they had, they'd heard everything. And so they say, hey, now we believe. Because you've said that, you're talking plainly to us. Verse 29 to 30, now we believe. Did they? Well, in part, but it was not fully true that thou, now they were hearing Jesus fully reveal himself. That would come at Pentecost. 
They told Jesus that he was speaking to them, not in veiled language anymore, plain, comprehensible speech. Verse 30, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. This statement expresses a measure of growing faith in the disciples. They recognize the omniscience of Jesus, that he knows all things. And that second statement in that verse implies that Jesus had read their minds. There were questions that they wanted to ask Jesus, but they didn't come out tumbling out of their face. Maybe they're afraid to ask, but Jesus knew. And so they say, you have no need for anyone to question you about anything. You know what's on our hearts and minds. So we believe that you came from God. In addition, they affirm what Jesus had been telling them all along. That he belonged in heaven. That he was sent from the Father. So the disciples expressed their confidence and faith in him. We believe that you came from God. And what is Jesus' response? Do you believe? Now, it's in question form in most of your translations, but we don't really know if this was a question or a statement because in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks. But I think we get the meaning, whether it's a question or a statement, because it could be read, now you believe? Either way, the point is made clear enough by Jesus here in verse 32 when he tells them that they are about to be scattered in an hour that's coming. You're about to be scattered. Do you believe? You men are about to be scattered because your belief is still very fragile. In a sense, Jesus is accepting their belief in him, which is genuine, but it isn't full grown. Is this a mature faith that's going to stand in the hour of testing? Will they stand when the enemy comes against them? A statement by J.C. Ryle that I just want to share with you in in commenting on the faith of the disciples. He writes, like young recruits, they had to learn that it is one thing to know the soldier's drill and wear the uniform and quite another thing to be steadfast in the day of battle. Some of our military people understand what's being said here. You can be trained, you can put on the uniform, but it's quite another thing to be steadfast when you're tested. The disciples at this point They're exuding confidence. And confidence can be a blessed gift so long as it is confidence in Christ. But self-confidence, that's a dangerous manifestation of pride. These men were sincere, but they did not realize the weakness of faith that they had until in just a few moments they would be tested and they would fail. Now this isn't going to come up on the board, but Ryle continues to write, the true secret of spiritual strength is self-distrust and deep humility. It is not self-confidence. The true secret of spiritual strength is self-distrust and deep humility. You will not hear that from the world. But it's exactly what Jesus is showing his men. Do you now believe Behold, verse 32, an hour is coming, and it's already here for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. The wheels have already been set in motion for this coming defection of the twelve. The scattering has already begun. Judas has left to betray Christ. 
And the conspirators were now assembling and making plans to apprehend Jesus in the darkness of night, away from the eyes of the Jerusalem citizens who might wish to possibly defend Jesus. And the remaining 11 disciples, they're next. As this mob is gathering and they end up at the Garden of Gethsemane, there'll be a few moments when the disciples, like a uniformed soldier that is green, might stand. But then they would defect. They would stand for a short time with Jesus, then they would be scattered, and Jesus would be left alone. But Jesus points out, I won't be alone. He will be left alone as far as those that stood in support of him. But he was not alone in regard to his enemies. They would be very much present there. But Jesus doesn't really seem to care about either one of those as long as the Father is with me. That is enough, and he will not leave me alone. And this was all the companionship that Jesus needed to persevere through the suffering and the torment that lay ahead. And this brings us to the final verse in chapter 16. The promise of Christ is the administration of the Spirit to grant a greater understanding of the Father and his will and his purposes, will provide a growing faith, but the Spirit, when he comes on that day, is going to grant them the gift of peace. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What Jesus describes here is a gift of peace that he provides his people through the ongoing ministry of his Spirit. This peace is going to describe for us a settled state of contentment or satisfaction in all the affairs of God with our life as we walk with Christ in a troubled world. And I think what has been thoroughly understood from the previous teachings of the Lord is that he does not remove us from trials and tribulations, nor does he always answer our prayer in taking away pain and suffering. In this world, he said, you will have tribulation. It is the reality of living in a fallen and broken world of sin. What Jesus does promise is to bring his goodness, his righteousness to bear in our lives through the suffering that we endure as we walk with him by faith. Here, it is a peace that he provides for his people while we live in the midst of trouble and grief. And we saw that back in verse 20. He will turn our trouble, our grief, into joy. Without question, even believers can experience anxiety, discouragement, and depression. In a small way, this morning I got up and I did what I normally do, and I get the coffee ready. I started to do some things in the kitchen, and I did a number of spills. I made several messes. I opened the dishwasher, thinking the dishes were clean. I started to put them away, and then I realized they're greasy, and they hadn't been run. So I had to fish them out of the cabinet. Then I knocked over a thing of water. And after the sixth time, I said, you've got to be kidding me. My morning is not going well. How many of you had a, a day, a month that hasn't gone well? And we're not talking about spilling water. It's event after event just seems to cause grief, maybe a year, maybe five years, where one thing after another brings grief and sorrow and pain. And very often, you and I succumb to it, don't we? And we feel anxious, fear, discouragement, even bouts of depression. Most all of us have experienced this lack of peace 
in one way or another, and maybe even in more limited ways than others, and I'm no exception. Simply being a Christian does not mean that we will live in peace when trouble comes our way. And the disciples are an example of that. Many of us are ill-prepared to face the troubles of this world because we have not disciplined ourselves in Christ. While others have found self-sufficiency and personal disciplines to be their strength, but that will only hold up so long as the troubles that come their way aren't things that they can control. More likely than not, when trouble comes our way, we cannot control our self-sufficiency and our personal disciplines will not hold. Jesus gives us two qualifications for the peace that he provides in the midst of tribulation. The first is, he says that these things I have spoken to you. The things that I've spoken to you. And second, he adds, so that in me you may have peace. Notice those two words, so that. That's a purpose clause. Jesus saying, I've spoken these words to you so that in me you can have peace. There are two qualifications then to experiencing the peace of Jesus Christ in a world that is filled with tribulation. Peace comes by his revealed word and it comes to us as we are found in him. Now, rather than deal with these two qualities, these two qualifications separately, I want to consider them together since both must be present and active, whereas peace will be experienced in our lives. And I honestly need this as much as you. I need to hear this and apply this as much as anybody here. To be found in Christ, to be found in him, must of necessity begin with faith in the cross, right? We have to be a believer in Christ. We cannot be an unbeliever and expect to experience the peace that Christ offers. It's only found in him. And we can only be in him by faith in his finished and substitutionary work on Calvary. So to be found in Christ begins at the cross. We fully surrendered ourselves to him as Savior and as King. We observe that when Jesus tells the disciples that he's spoken these things to them, that these things that he's referring to must of necessity include everything he's taught them in the past three years but it, it comes to bear on their lives most specifically in chapter 13 through 16, this upper room discourse or this farewell discourse. Jesus has carefully defined what it means to be found in him. So let's quickly just review that. Beginning in chapter 14, he tells his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. And he went on to encourage those, beginning of chapter 14, he encourages those who believe in God and believe in him with the promise of a place in God's eternal heaven for all who come to him by faith, that where I am, you may be also. And then he makes clear that this kind of access into God's heaven is only through him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me moving from being found in Christ by faith, Jesus continues to teach what that will mean in the life of a believer. Now that we are in Christ by faith as saved ones, as believers, we must continue to be found in Christ. Chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus gives a promise of peace to his people that will address the troubles and the fears of life. But it is the Spirit 
verse 26 of chapter 14. It's the Spirit that must administer this peace as we are taught by His Word. As we come under the Spirit's teaching of us through the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And this is important because there are many people that may claim to believe in Jesus Christ and they will call themselves Christian. But apart from this empty confession, if they show little evidence that they truly believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, they're not going to walk in His ways. They're not going to pay attention to His Word. So if I'm calling myself a Christian, but I'm not walking with the Spirit according to the Word of Christ, I don't belong to Him. That's Romans chapter 8. Only those who are led by the Spirit belong to Christ. Therefore, Jesus teaches His people in this discourse what it means to be found in Him. Chapter 14 continues with the promise that the Holy Spirit would come to be with His redeemed people and He would dwell within His people, dwelling within their hearts. And in this way, Jesus never leaves us as orphans. We're always found in Him. And then chapter 15 opens up with that great analogy of the vine and the branches, Christ the vine. The true believer is the branch that is attached to that vine. And so Jesus talks much about abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, abiding in his word. This finds the believer living in the context of God's love, loving what he loves and walking in a way that he loves, living in a way that loves him by obedience to him holding fast to his word. That's what it means to be in Christ. And even as a believer, if we're not found there abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, abiding in his word, we're over here living for ourselves. Do you think we're going to experience the peace of Christ? No. Jesus tells us at the very end of this discourse, these things I've spoken to you, if you're listening to me and you walk by the truth of my word, you'll know my peace. But as a believer, if I'm over here living the wildlife, apart from Christ's word, no, there will be no peace. According to the new commandment of Jesus Christ, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Suppose as a believer, I'm living hatefully, despising, having bitterness toward others that Christ loves. Am I going to experience the peace of Christ? Well, no. Because I'm not found in love. I'm not found abiding in Christ's love. This is how true disciples of Christ are known, Jesus said. How you love one another. This is how the world's going to know you belong to me. So anyone who claims to be Christian and yet has no love for the body of Christ, shows no interest in caring for other believers, worshiping together with them, is likely only deceiving themselves. A true believer will have some passion for other believers in a way that expresses love to them as Christ has loved them. True believers are abiding in the word of Christ. They're abiding in his love. There are many times when we may drift away from these things. But a true disciple of Christ can never be content to be separate for him for long. We can't be. Believers are like grape branches. We've got to be attached to the vine. We're drawing our spiritual nourishment from him. Our vitality is coming from him. We are drawing from him, being found in his word, found in his love. We're becoming healthy and we're bearing fruit, Jesus says in John 15. We're becoming productive for Christ as believers. 
Jesus Christ provides his peace to those who are found in him and who are attentive to his word. And when tribulation comes, and truly it's never very far away from us, we can remain satisfied and content in Christ because we're thoroughly nourished by him. As Jesus closes this discourse, the promise of peace, this is what he means by being in him and by taking in the words that he has spoken to us. You want the peace of Christ. Jesus teaches us here. This is how you can experience that through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, the final word in this discourse is a declaration that despite what the disciples are about to witness, about to experience, Jesus has already overcome. Notice that last line, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In a few hours, they're going to look at a dying Savior, the Messiah, nailed and bloody and beaten up, and he's going to surrender his spirit. Do you think the disciples at that moment thought Jesus was an overcomer? You know they didn't. And we wouldn't think any differently. But Jesus says, I've already overcome. In a few hours' time, the disciples are going to witness the arrest, the condemnation, the execution of their Messiah. They would know of his death on a Roman cross, that he was buried in a grave. And in the eyes of any who witnessed this, they would hardly consider Jesus to have overcome the world. The disciples would experience a moment of defeat and utter discouragement. It would not be until they came under the ministry of the helper, the spirit of truth, they would fully understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, that it was a glorious victory over sin, death, and eternal judgment. It is why the Son of God came to this world, as Jesus previously said. And when Jesus proclaimed this victory, so certain was he of success, the success of his mission, that he declared he had overcome the world. And it's based on his victory, his triumph, that he tells the disciples, now you be encouraged. Take courage. I have overcome. It's a proclamation of victory and triumph that is meant to encourage us as believers that we are overcomers as well. This is the source of our peace in tribulation. It is the victory that he won on Calvary. These three declarations then, then can be made from this statement by Christ as he closes out this discourse. And you have these in your note sheet, beginning with, we overcome in him. And this is just taking from the words of Christ. We overcome in him. This means we have a true and genuine faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. It means that we're actually abiding in him, abiding in his love, abiding in his words. The words that he's spoken to us, we're continually filling our hearts and minds with. We're walking in obedience to his commands, walking in his love, submitting to his will. Now, I put to you what most often happens when a world of hurt ends up in our lap. When five or six things happen in your morning or in your year or in a month, we tend to withdraw from the church. We stop praying. We're not reading as much as we should. And we feel sorry for ourselves. We lick our wounds. We become anxious, fearful, and very often we fall into the dreaded depression. So Jesus is telling us, you take courage. It is found in me. I have overcome. You can be an overcomer as well. It is found in him, abiding in his love, abiding in his word, holding fast to Christ. 
If tribulations do anything for us, they should drive, her close, drive us closer to Christ, abiding in him because he has overcome. Second, we overcome in him in a world of trouble. We overcome in him in a world of trouble. Trouble is never going to leave us so long as we're in this world. The words of Jesus Christ make it clear here. We will have tribulation. The peace and the victory that Jesus provides for his people through the ministry of his spirit is not the removal of tribulation and suffering. It is rather the confident satisfaction that we belong to Christ, that he is sovereign, he is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father even now, and he's orchestrating everything in my life for my good. Even the tribulation, even when I sin against him, and he brings his hand of chastisement against us. Remember how we talked before. It produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness when we are trained by his discipline. Therefore, no matter what's happening in life, no matter the tribulation, this is a world of trouble. That's not going to change so long as we are here. We have peace in knowing that he works all things together for good to us, even tribulation. And third, we overcome in him, in a world of trouble, with courage. With courage. We don't want to miss this. Take courage. In other words, we are to become courageous at this point. Why? Because he overcame the world. The word courage is where we get the word encouragement. Life is filled with fear, uncertainty, sorrows, disappointments. The believer is found in Christ, in his word, trusting in him. No matter what comes our way, Jesus will overcome. This is where we can know peace in the midst of trouble. We may choose to rest in him, or we may choose to pout and to fuss. Our encouragement comes when our eyes are constantly fixed on him, the one who overcame at Calvary so that we might forever be found in his love and in his eternal care. That's a hard one for me to always see when I'm in the midst of something I don't like that is hard for me to deal with. I'm still in his hands. He's got me there. Why am I supposed to be there? What am I supposed to be doing? Courage is really his courage. That should be our courage. We're encouraged to walk in the tribulation of this world as we hold fast to him. Therefore, may God grant us courage and peace as we abide in his truth and as we abide in his love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these are difficult lessons for feeble-minded believers like us to take hold of. But the promise of your son is the same. It is unchanged. Our faith may be weak, but Father, you have sent your spirit to strengthen our faith. We see that from this passage before us. It's why he was given to us. Therefore, Father, would you grant us the humble hearts, remove from us the self-confidence that so often gets in the way, the arrogance, the pride. And may we find our confidence in you, in your spirit, in your son who overcame. Teach us these hard and valuable lessons. Grow us in our understanding of you. Grow us in our faith. And Father, grow us in our understanding and our apprehension of the peace that can only be found in your triumphant Son and our Savior. And it's his name we pray this together.
Amen.